Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Today I'm speaking with Amrita Kedambi. Amrita is a vocalist, musician, composer, and band leader based in New York City. She founded and leads the quartet Elder Ones and has released two albums with them. The first entitled Holy Science in 2016 and the second entitled From Untruth in 2019. Amrita is also a regular collaborator of Leah Bertucci in a voice and analog electronics duo and is a member of guitarist Mary Halverson's Code Girl. She has collaborated and performed with many musicians in the experimental and creative music community. As a performer and improviser, Kadambi has premiered works by pioneering composers, including AACM founder and pianist Mahal Richard Abrams, premiering his Dialogue Social Roulette, Robert Ashley's Crash at the Whitney Biennial, and Darius Jones's The Oversoul Manual at Carnegie Hall. Amrita earned a Master of Arts in Ethnomusicology from Columbia University, and a Master of Music in Voice and Musicology from Brooklyn College. Before I move on to the interview, I wanted to play an excerpt of Amrita's music so you can hear how amazing she is. Here's the beginning of a track entitled Eat the Rich off of Elder Ones' latest album, From Untruth. Amrita Kadambi, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, you're saying my name, how my family says it, because you are my family. So. Indeed. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, I know how that, I know how it feels to have your name pronounced a certain way. Yes. Uh, yeah, so we're second cousins, and um, it's amazing. We were just talking about this before we started, that it's nice to have someone in the family who has taken a, a somewhat similar route uh, in comparison to like the rest of our family, we're, most of our family is like what doctors, lawyers, some engineers, Engineer. some yeah, 
ones. Those ones. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. I I guess I want to tell a quick story, just a really coincidental moment that happened when I was in school. So I was in my junior year of college and I was studying jazz. I've said this a billion times on this podcast. And it so happened that I was in Amsterdam on a school trip the same time you were touring with Mary Halverson and you were playing jazz in Amsterdam and I got a chance to see you there in concert, which was just a a great experience and a lot of fun. And just like a fun moment because you were at the main jazz venue in Amsterdam, which is called Beam House, which is like the place that all of my friends just like, if they want to ever play in Amsterdam, they want to play there. So it was just fun to be like, my cousin is playing there. (laughs) That was really, that was so awesome. I was so, I was so happy. And I was also excited because I was like, telling everybody in the band like I was like my cousin's a drummer you know <laughs> like here you know you gotta meet him and so yeah that was that was very very cool very awesome but in any case I guess it's always good to start with sort of how you got to where you are so tell me a little bit about your upbringing um and how that led you to to music and then beyond yeah, I mean, so I guess one, even though we're, we come from the same family, one major difference uh, between our generations is that I'm I'm first generation, and so uh, you, you know because your your dad is my cousin, so we're of the same. Your dad and me are of the same generation, which was like, you know, our parents came directly from India, and I think that um, I mean your your mom is also directly from India, but um, where there is this 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 very strange feeling of be, like being first, you know, mm-hmm. for first American, like trying to figure out what to, uh, what that means. And, and that, that big, like cultural di- difference. And, um, in some ways, like, you know, that has a lot to do with the kind of music I ended up making because there was such a strong Indian cultural presence in the, ha- in the home, you know? So like, probably my very, very first interactions with music were, um, through like Hindu, Hindu devotional practice. So, um, we grew up like on my dad's side of the family practicing a kind of pantheist Hinduism following this guru, Sai Baba, um, which like the main part of that practice, there's like two things that are part of that practice, which Surj knows about, um, which are, uh, one is seva, which is like service oriented activities. So we like, we're doing things like serving at the homeless shelter. And I mean, I feel like a lot of my awareness of like how society works and like, um, you know, the political ills and strife and inequity in our society comes from that, that we were like doing all these service activities. And then the second part of that practice was like communal singing was bhajan. Like those were the two pillars of that. My very first interactions with music certainly were in the bhajan setting, which was this kind of call and response tradition. Sure. And same for me as well, really. Right. When I yeah. think about it. Exactly. And so it's like, you know, the instrumentation is you have harmonium, um, you have ganjira, which is like one of the hand percussion instruments. You have, uh, often there's like tabla player, mardangam, which is the South Indian kind of, uh, barrel drum. And, um, but then also we had like, we had a, a, a Jewish center member who played guitar, like my cousin Vasanth, uh, you know, your second cousin playing guitar and Vivek played bass and Jenny mm-hmm. played key. These were all our cousins played keyboard. Right. And so there was a lot, I mean, it was just, there was so much musical activity around that community and then you know for the more like 
typically Hindu stuff. There was like Vedic chanting in the house all the time. There was, you know, like, I mean, my mom is such an avid Carnatic music fan that, you know, my name is Amrita, which comes is from the Raga Amrita. Actually, my name is Amrita Varshini because it's named for the Raga, which is the rain bringing Raga. That's um, right. And then Pallavi, my sister, it's the Pallavi is like the part of the raga. It's part of a song form in Carnatic music where it's like the opening up or the flowering of the raga. And mm-hmm. and so that and it also means like just the flowering, like spring and, and things like that. Um, and so, you know, my mom is like a crazy avid Carnatic music fan. Like Kadri Gopalnath was like on in the house all the time, who is a saxophonist, interestingly. Oh, that's um, crazy. And she was so into him that she was like following him around India. Like, <laughs> I don't even know if you know these things. No, about I, my I, mom. I've heard. I think I've heard that, but I don't know much about it. No. Yeah. So she was like obsessed. Like, and and she just never learned it. Um, and her sister was studying a little, her, a little bit when she was growing up. She was so into music, and she was playing me like Carnatic music in the womb, and. Um, so, you know, it was like singing Budgeon's Price starting like age three, um, which there's like, you know, just inherent in it is improvising. It's an, it's like all, there's you no know, notation. It's a folk tradition. It's all by ear. You know, you just call and response like so many traditions. And, um, there's a certain kind of aesthetic to it. Uh, and, and then, yeah, just like having Carnatic music on in the home all the time and like. Yeah, but also specifically an alto saxophonist, um, Carnatic yeah. musician, which is kind of like, I think there was a real draw to the saxophone as an instrument for me, hmm. po- possibly because of that. It's something I've been thinking about. Yeah, because you've been starting some saxophone. I've been watching some videos of you playing. It's really, it's fun to watch. Yeah, I started, I, it's, uh, it's, I think my one year anniversary of playing saxophone, alto saxophone was last week. <laughs> so. Okay, yeah, a quarantine project. Yeah, but I've, you know, I've been playing, I've, I've even played it on all, I've had an odd number of gigs on alto in the past year of the pandemic. <laughs> so I, I've been writing for it and I, I play in a duo with a tenor saxophonist where we both like, she's like an amateur singer and she sings and I'm an amateur saxophonist and I play, but we both oh, that's do awesome. bo- both things. Um, but yeah, we like it. So music was just so present in the house. Um, and then I studied Bharatanatyam dance growing up. So that like, interestingly, I didn't end up studying Carnatic music growing up. Those were the only lessons of anything I had gotten. I had never gotten a formal music lesson until I got to college. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, it's interesting because in tandem with this, so I was doing Bharatanatyam dance. The cool thing about Bharatanatyam is that it, it, it is the dance tradition that, you know, is accompanied by Carnatic music. Um, yeah. So it really, I mean, as a drummer, like you probably notice, uh, all the footwork in Bharatanatyam is exactly what, what the drummers in, in Carnatic music learn. They're the same. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, they, we use the same syllables, right? And doublists and, and dancers will use the exact same syllables to, or similar syllables at least, to identify the movement versus the actual, like, hand movement on the drum. Yeah, and the it's like the foot movement, so it's like the flat of the foot, the heel of the foot, the tip of the foot, you know? And so it's, like, really the same. So in one way, I, I guess, like, in a, the rhythms are literally embodied for me because I learned them through my feet. Um, so it's more like, 
now that I'm going through carnotic training now, it's more like the gummicum and like the microtonal like inflection and the tone, the timbre that are like a little slower for me. But the the rhythmic stuff is like really at least that came through dance. Um, so there was that side of things. So on one hand, it's like this real like immersion and. Um, Indian music through like the Hindu tradition or through like the pantheist um, practice that we had and learning budgeons and things. And then on the other hand, since I was five, I was in choir. Um, and I happened to go to an elementary school where there was this like angelic, like mystical, like I don't know what heaven she dropped out of this music <laughs> teacher. Um, that I had named um, Mary Wilmer, who's who's uh, still in San Jose, and I, I visited her a couple of years ago. Uh, I guess just just before the pandemic, and she was just incredible. And she was just like the kind of person who believed that kids could do anything, and like didn't talk to you like a child, didn't treat you like a child. Like I mean, I guess I was four when you know when I started singing in her choirs, and. Um, we sang Bartok in Hungarian. She took us to see Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin. We sang Bach with the, the Santa Clara Chorale. We sang um, in the children's choir for uh, the Nutcracker with the Kirov Ballet from St. Petersburg. We did like, and you know, she was teaching us about Duke Ellington and she was teaching us that African-American spirituals were the root of all American music. That's that's a great choir teacher. Wow, that's like everything right there. She was just ridiculous. Yeah, singing songs in Yiddish, singing African choral music. I mean, she was like, I, I she, I don't think she thought she was doing anything radical, but she was, you know. Yeah. So even though I had never taken a voice lesson or a piano lesson, I never got that growing up. I I had this crazy foundation and like I could sight sing anything and I could, you know, I could read music and um, I had some kind of understanding of theory, even though I had never taken a theory class. So I, I would say that was pure luck because it was just it wasn't like we had some amazing public school system in California at all. <laughs> Maybe the opposite. No, not necessarily. <laughs> Although, you know, coming from Memphis, I think it was a big step up for me. So once I had, I mean, not to disparage Memphis, but kind of, yeah, to disparage the Tennessee yeah. education system, you know, California was, was a step up for me particularly, but I agree with you. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was a luck of the draw, like which school you ended up at. And then she actually advocated for me um she came to my my house to talk to my parents about getting me to the performing arts magnet middle school um like once I was in the fifth grade and I was about to leave elementary school she was like you know I know you want her at Bret Hart which is like the science magnet but you know like she, she needs to go to this this school Castellare this place with like it had choir, drama, dance, jazz bands, like, and it was a pub, there was all public school. So I, I, it was like, I was able to get enough sort of training through just being in choirs and being in show choir and being in musicals and musical theater. I went to a, a high school where musical theater was like really, really serious. And I was like, I was actually like thought I was going to be an actor too. I don't huh. know. I, there's a lot of things that maybe we haven't talked about. Um, right. <laughs> Because musical theater was such the avenue for me as a soloist, I, I, and I was like in drama and I was doing all like the straight theater too. I, w I was like doing all the serious plays and I was kind of assuming I would do both, which is why I went to school in Los Angeles for college. Ah, 
That makes so much more. That makes so much sense. That's exactly the decision you I had to make too. Is like, oh, I'm staying in LA. Want to act? Exactly. And so, um, but what was funny? So these tensions start to arise because it was like, well, on one hand, I'm immersed in music because, you know, partly because I'm coming from an Indian family because spiritual thing you know it's like the idea is like music brings you closer to god literally it's like a way to worship it's and even like our you know the composers in carnatic music are called saint thyagaraja not like just thyagaraja that guy no he's a saint like that's the level of reverence yet as an indian immigrant first generation it's like no but you got to make money (laughs) (laughs) yeah right yeah right exactly (laughs) <laughs> well, which is so different than the experience that I had because I was one removed, right? So my, my dad had to go through that, like, when I ask him about becoming a doctor, there's no, <laughs> it's really, it's really like unsentimental. It's very hilarious. much just like, that was the, that was the thing and everyone did it and I did it and it's, that's what I'm doing. And it's kind of like, but you didn't think maybe I want to do this. He's like, sir, there's no want to not want to. <laughs> there's, there's what there is. And that's what there was. It, it, it was just a struggle from the minute that it, it, it started to look really serious for me. Like in high school, especially I bought a guitar with money that I saved at Baskin Robbins and was starting. And I was really into like, I really wanted to be in a rock band and <laughs> starting to write my own songs in high school and like so when I made my I declared my intention to major in music I mean it was really intense like I left home one night like stayed at my friend's house because we got in such a big fight it was like it was like some betrayal um and you know when I look back on it I think it was like they just want what's best for you like in their mind like safety and security are the thing that is best for you and they just cannot conceive of how being a musician could produce those things, you know? I mean, this is a whole can of worms, but just I think one of the, the major projects I, I want to try to embark on with art in all its forms is is kind of like just stating a fact about how absurd it is that art, like you can't make a living doing the arts unless you like scrape by and or you get extremely lucky and those are kind of the two options in the united states and other places but not necessarily if yeah if you live in no specifically Scandinavia or france or specifically in the u.s it's just kind of uh, absurd and as you were kind of alluding to earlier music in terms of the folk tradition it's like a way of life too it's just part of who we are and dance as well is is very much connected and then you kind of get into the modern world and it's like, it's an extracurricular. It's like over right. here in this box. And it's the first thing to get cut. Like if, if, if you're getting an education in the, in the U.S. and you want to cut something because you can't fund it, the first thing to get cut is the arts. Even though it's the piece that in a lot of ways is like most culturally relevant to so many people, especially to, to immigrants, you know, from all over the world who experiences, I think, even more solidly than maybe people do in the States. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is like something I'm sure we'll get into also, but I, I think a lot of spiritual degradation, um, like of the spirit in general, which I think the arts are part of is in this country, especially, but we've exported it all over the world is capitalism. And, you know, when something isn't uh, a product, especially that can make someone rich or increase in value. It it really is 
worthless in our society. It's considered that way. And I think like when you, especially like immigrants are coming to America in order to live out this dream that is rooted in capitalism, even if they're not thinking of it that way, it's like, it's to, it's to climb up a, a ladder of comfort. Um, and, you know, coming from the, our, our family is from like this very small village, uh, in India and like it, uh, I think they just wanted stability and security. They wanted, they wanted me to have a better life than they had. And, and, and they couldn't, or like a better life wasn't like the picture that they had. Yeah. So like when, when I went to college and when, I guess I, I guess I won the battle somehow with my parents. I, <laughs> I think I threatened to not go to school at all if I wasn't studying music. <laughs> wow, that's a move. All right. I was like, well, I'm just going to move to L.A. then. Um, they were like, whoa, okay, hold, hold on. <laughs> like, what if you have a business minor? And I said, sure. And then I dropped it in like a few semesters. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Right. And then my, my minor was peace and conflict studies. Um, so All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they were like, okay, that's useless. Um, <laughs> but it's now it's all connected to what I do now. But um, yeah. And then in college I studied, I studied like Western classical music. The accurate thing to call the music major at, I went to Loyola Marymount um, would have been Western classical European music major, but they don't say that they just call it music. And so I was already into jazz, um, and I was into rock, and I was listening to a bunch of non-Western music that wasn't Indian music and Indian music, and um, I was seeing so many concerts all the time. And so, like, my universe of music was already pretty big before I got to college, and um, I, like, I already was like getting really into John Coltrane because uh the San Jose Public Library near my house had the entire Impulse collection on CD. Oh wow. Yeah. So some some cool librarian uh like had played a huge role in my life and has no idea um <laughs> because I I at the time where we used to rip CDs or download things from Napster um we, I, I ripped like the entire Impulse catalog onto our home computer. And I like, I, I was listening. I mean, I was obsessed with the Love Supreme. That was my favorite thing in high school. Mine in college too. It was really amazing to listen to. Yeah. And then I remember listening to things like Interstellar Space and not quite being ready for it or not quite understanding what it was. And then in college, like coming back to it. And it wasn't by virtue of my classes. It was all because I had started working at the radio station. So I had access to their entire archive. That was KXLU in Los Angeles, which is a pretty prominent underground, like historic underground station. Um, and then if you were a DJ at KXLU, which I was, I had a, a show called The Modern Age, which I was already getting into, like, I guess the avant-garde. Um, that show was like <clears throat> film music. I was a heavy into film, um, so it was like experimental music, film music, electronic music, avant-garde jazz, avant-garde classical music, and like experimental rock, and it was like pretty across the, the board of like things that are sort of left of center, <laughs> and so that's when I heard Albert Eiler, that's when I oh, heard yeah. Cecil Taylor, and started getting into Ornette, and 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 then going back to those late Coltrane records was like whoa, <laughs> like okay, yeah, now wow. I so get it. That's interesting. So you took that route. You actually went further 
I, I don't even know like what the, how you would even define this. I mean, you probably know this more than I do, but you would go further into the like the avant-garde or like even atonal, like just outside of sort of the norm of like what typical bebop or swing jazz would be. And then you came back around and then Coltrane was kind of like on his way there. And so it's like a very interesting way of approaching it. <laughs> Well, I had gone through, I guess I just went through things non-linearly, like, quote unquote, because I wasn't in jazz school. I was, my music history classes were, were I think in a way that made things more open for me when it comes to jazz as a, an idea, because I was more self-taught. I, I guess I can say it from my perspective, going to jazz school, because I really, like, even the same way you were talking about how your major should have been called, you know, your Western European classical music, essentially. For me, like jazz is mostly like bebop and post-bop jazz music from 1945 to 1968. 65. Yeah, 60. Yeah, right around there. <laughs> That's yeah, pretty much it. You know, you we don't really even study. It's amazing. We spend not even a month studying Louis Armstrong and any New of the Orleans, stuff that happened before yeah. New Orleans. Not even. And you spend like a month being like, hey, check out Albert Eiler. Exactly, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> check out our next Coleman. If you're lucky. Yeah, right. if you're lucky. No, I mean, that's the same, like, classical music. Um, you know, my music history classes were, like, you know, early Baroque, a little bit of medieval music, um, and they touch on the Greeks for a second. I mean, it's pure Western. Like, they don't <laughs> even hide it once you're actually <laughs> studying it. And then to... You know, they do go to the, the modern era, but it's like this canonization. And I have, there's a lot of thoughts about pedagogy because I teach as well. And um, it's this really kind of prototypical like historiography, uh, which is like a very Western way of doing history. And um, it, it comes from other academic disciplines in the West that kind of formed you know, at the beginning of publishing and authorship where it's like you, the author becomes like this all important figure. Right. And so you get like Beethoven, there's this whole, this was this musicologist, Lydia Gore, who talks about the Beethoven paradigm. And so this shift in how we even thought of a composer after like 1800. And so you have basically, and capitalism and publishing and having a product and selling. Something, oh yeah. Selling Copyright, the whole intellectual <laughs> property. Yep. I just wrote an essay about it for this Art and Alls forums, like about how people considering that notion of like ownership of art by an individual, that, that even though we take that for granted, that that's an actual, that's a constructed concept. That's a cons oh, yeah. Everything is constructed. So like, like historiography, like the, the which is like sort of the, the practice of writing history involves editing as well, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, and you get these figures. And so classical music history, which was the first like t academized, um, form of music history and ethnomusicology is its own insane um, history of development, but it comes from the same, it all came from Germany in the same, uh, the same period, um, was like, here are the men who are the giants of each one of these distinct styles that follows a linear evolution meaning that it gets more and more complex. Right. And meaning, and also Darwin's theories are happening in Europe at the same time. So everything kind of takes on this historic, like a linear evolutionary thing. And so when jazz enters academia, 
also because it has a lowered status because it's considered, you know, it's it's a it it's a black musical form, and we know there's a racial caste system in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to sort of gain a kind of legitimacy, and how do we elevate jazz, quote unquote, um, to the level? And so starting to call it like there was a whole thing in the '90s of like, and I remember this, uh, America's classical music. Like, yeah, like, right. Just a re- the reframing of it. Oh, it's a, it's a museum piece. It starts to become a little bit. Right. I mean, um, and actually, you should check out Lydia Gore because her, her book is called An Imaginary um, Museum Museum of Musical Objects, I think. is the, 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 yeah. ah. She's one of the originators of this, this concept in um, the 80s. I forget when she wrote it, maybe early 90s. Uh, but, but this idea, yeah, that um, we have to raise jazz to that level. Well, I was going to say that I also feel like having left school and, as I call it, like detoxing from that experience a little bit, you also realize that going back to roots is, is particularly helpful. And I think this connects with a lot of your, your work, which we'll get to, which is the idea of music as a religious or, or a spiritual experience, feeling things in your body as opposed to intellectualizing them. Yeah, these are like yeah. These are all things that are like very apparent just from our upbringing, but then you get to school and it's very, like the, the paradigm in which you learn everything is very different. And you have to kind of spend, at least from, from my point of view, I had to spend some amount of time like unlearning the things that I had, that I heard. I would hear something from a teacher and even though I, I respect that professor or respect their view on it, I would have to kind of like hit myself over the head and be like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> you, you, you feel something different about this. That, that's all right. Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's it's always good to have a critical practice. Like um, you can you can have like respect and reverence and for your elders and your teachers while being critical. Um, but also, I I would call this process de- decolonizing. That's how I realized it, because a lot of the de- the thing we're talking about is kind of an east west problem and is a power structure problem where like the devaluation of the body was a, a way you also colonize people, um, you know, and it's a post-Enlightenment kind of problem. Like, there was a real split about rationalism and positivism and sort of, like, provability of, like, you have to be able to um, prove things in these empirical ways and other types of knowledge became very devalued and let's not forget all that stuff is right, all that stuff in Europe is happening as as they're colonizing the world, you know, so you get to uh, like reinforce your worldview and as a as a part of a hierarchy where it's above other people, um, you can subjugate them much more easily if you create this kind of big distinction. I, I feel like once these things get institutionalized, it's like really closes you off to kind of different ways of thinking or ways of being and like when I got to New York, like after college, I, I wasn't like I knew what I wanted to do exactly what type of music Mm -hmm. Uh, I was still confused at that point I was like doing opera programs and um okay yeah I went I went into another uh another like conservative music conservatory I remember seeing you in New York I saw you perform opera music in New York I was very I was young at this time I don't remember exactly when it was yeah I mean I was so I was still doing classical recitals and um but I kind of started to realize I was most interested in contemporary classical music because at least it was like new. Um, but then I, at the same time, I had a professor, my first year of graduate school named Salim Washington, who was a, um, 
you know, Fulbright scholar who went to Yale, musicologist who was a black tenor player and um, played with in Fred Ho's band. Fred Ho, if you don't know him, amazing Asian-American musician who was a Marxist who had a, a big band called the Afro-Asian Ensemble. Nobody talks about this stuff in no. jazz school. <laughs> I, I need to, uh, yeah, I'll look this up and I'll put a link in the show notes for Super everyone else Super radical, too. amazing guy. He died of cancer way too young, but he's somebody we should really, really, and, and, and the Asian-American contribution to jazz is so invisibilized. It's like, There's such a black-white paradigm, even though there were and have been Asian jazz musicians for a long time. And so, yeah, like this professor, he, one, he played the music. That made a huge difference. He, He himself played, I think, that was and was a professional musician. And he was a musicologist, so he's really critical. It was a rare combo. It was called Jazz jazz Musicians as Intellectuals. That's what the course title was. It was the first class I took in grad school, the first time I sat in a grad school class. And and um, the, the most important book we read for me was George Lewis's book about um, the AACM, which is the Association for the, the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Um, and... So, I mean, I've I've asked classes this. I'm like, what does that sound like? Like, why do you think they had named this collective, which was not a band. It was a collective of composer improvisers. It was it was a collective formed on the south side of Chicago that emphasized writing your own original compositions and playing them. It was not about playing standards, although they, they did that. But that group was about, that collective was about, we write our own music. It's like, what is that title reminiscent of? The, the NAACP, right? So, so they started in the south side of Chicago, and their whole thing was... Yeah, new music, original compositions. Um, it was all black musicians, and they had had eventually had opened it up to people of who were not black, <clears throat> and it was completely modeled on the Black Panthers. Um, so they had a free music school in the community. They had food programs. There was like an ensemble of composers who were writing really avant-garde music like they were do they were starting to write operas they did performance art it was multidisciplinary they worked with theater actors they had painters who would come like live who still like when we have um creative music concerts and aacm stuff like painters in the front row like painting improvising with the musicians um and they were they were consistently called jazz musicians no matter what they did. So Muhal Richard Abrams was the founder. Um, but then you had people like Anthony Braxton is part of that group. Roscoe Mitchell is part of that group. Amina Claudine Myers is part of that group. Everybody's coming to it from different perspectives. Like Amina is a, a, a gospel um, a keyboardist first and foremost and vocalist and She's one of my mentors in New York. Um, and so, like, a lot of these folks, like, they were just called jazz musicians all the time. And they felt that this was kind of a derogatory term. Yeah. Just from what I've read in terms of the academic literature, jazz was extremely derogatory in its, like, application in academic stuff. For years, it was, like, jazz music versus classical music. It's always sort of pitched as the as the thing that's not as good. And as you were talking about, too— less complex, you know, this kind of like obsession with complexity and trying to like categorize, oh, classical music. Yeah, it's like primitive. Very primitive music, right? You're just kind of, it's, it feels ridiculous to read it now, but it was very serious. And so, and the musicians that had to deal with it at the time, it's kind of like, man, 
I mean, even Miles and Coltrane both would just say, I'm not playing jazz. I don't know what you're talking about when you say that. Yeah, I play my music. Yeah. There's an etymology that comes from early jazz criticism in New Orleans. Like, it's like, where was jazz played initially? Well, it wasn't allowed to be played in any legitimate establishment. It was only played in the brothels in New Orleans. Um, Or like, you know, like uh, these like little side shacks along the river where, you know, like sailors and people working in that trade would like come drink and so the critics it the the term comes from the jazz which is like a slang for ejaculate and it was related to the sex industry and Mm. and the critics the white critics especially because it was considered like this music is going to make our society crumble like good white society crumble well, and, and it's it's frustrating to see history repeat itself with the discourse around hip hop. It's like I, it's identical. And it, that's the part that's so frustrating is like you read what people said about jazz. It's it's vulgar. It's a music connected to drugs. And like you said, prostitution. And then you're like, hmm, 90s, 2000s, onward. <laughs> Kendrick Lamar. Like, what are we talking about here? Same thing. But it's just white supremacy. Like, we haven't undone that, so why would that change, you know? And so I think, like, I I resonated so much with this because, one, I couldn't figure out what the hell kind of music I wanted to do and and in what way. Um, But basically, like, you know, Duke Ellington didn't even use the term jazz. He called it black folk music. Um, They they weren't saying we don't play jazz. They were were saying, like, just because I have a saxophone in my hand, Anthony Braxton has written 14 operas. Yeah, right. (laughs) So he's like, just because I'm black and I have a saxophone in my hand, it doesn't mean that that's that's what I do. And, And also they wanted to say... Well, look, like you guys have commodified jazz, like white people have commodified jazz and taken it away from our black communities. And they in the south side of Chicago, which is a very impoverished community, um, they were like, you know, we we are going to open this up and we're going to call it creative music. And what I love about that term and why I kind of went down this path, because uh, free improvisation is a big part of creative music, non-idiomatic, let's say, free improvisation, which doesn't mean you never get to play melodies or you never get to play. I mean, it, just for your listeners, because yeah, I right. have probably have people from, from, who are coming from different, um, di- all kinds of different places. You know, like jazz you improvise kind of according to maybe some a tradition or some rules, which now has been very codified as like what happened in the 1950s. Like you improvise over harmony that changes, like um, and they call it improvising over changes. That's one really particular way to improvise. So free improvisation, which, you know, people like the ACM were doing, it was also happening in Europe, um, was like, you just play, you get in a room, you may not have ever ever even played together and you just play. So when I was in grad school, because these musicians were inspiring me, also their social activism, because they were modeled on the Panthers and they were interested in bridging music and community and serving the community. Like George Lewis, who is the chair of composition at Columbia now, was a 17 year old, like getting free music lessons in 
the south side of Chicago from the ASEM and he never went to college and he got that's how he got his education now he's the chair of composition at Columbia University that's the power of like community organizing through art and music and so everything about this inspired me and everything about this was like that's what I want to do I don't know what kind of music will come out of that um and then a year after I graduated, I Muhal Richard Abrams called me to do a gig, and he was the founder of the AACM. So everything oh, somehow it worked very nicely. Yeah, it was weird. And you know, Vijay Iyer, who was like the one Indian musician I knew in in jazz and creative music, like he, I had connected with him, and he kind of mentors like all young Indian musicians in New York in some way, and he mm-hmm. was really connected to the AACM, and so that became a very strong presence in my life. And I like, yeah, free improvising became a way out of reading notated music all the time. And free improvisation was a way out of all of it. It was a way to decolonize, like, cause I had to start breaking down, like, wait, what is my voice? Like, I don't even know how to make a non-classical tone these days. Like I need to reconfigure like all that training. I like started singing by myself at home, um, freely with the harmonium which I dug out of my closet that I had a harmonium and I, I started improvising with that. It was the first way I started to have my own sense of my creative voice. Like it, cause free improvisation doesn't come from nowhere. And I think that's a big misconception just cause you get together in a room and it's silent and then you just start playing and music is happening. You're listening to each other. You're having a conversation. You're you. And so you are going to do certain things because of like where you come from and so for me like Indian like ragas were just like in my body somewhere they started coming out certain kind of rhythmic patterns started coming out certain just way of doing things and the classical stuff was also coming out and like the rock bands I was in were coming out you know and so like Mm -hmm. so it allowed you to freely accept all of your influences and allow that to be part of what you were doing which is really great Yeah, so that was the first time, uh, it was like a long preamble, I guess, or it's all one conversation. Yeah, it's all together. Uh, That was when I started to even conceive of what if I made my own music and what would that be like? And, you know, Muhal Richard Abrams, after one of our rehearsals, we did this big ensemble piece and he had asked me, like, what's your music like? I was like, uh, I, I don't, I don't know yet. And, and he was like, okay, well, there's only one way to find out. You got to write it and then you'll know. (laughs) It's like, don't, don't be precious about it. Just go, go write some music and then you'll figure it out. Like, don't worry about it. And, and it was, and I did that and I got a commission the next year at this venue called Roulette. And then I had money to pay people. So I finally made a band, uh, called Elder Ones, which is my, main thing but right um, yeah so you have two albums well two albums with them more two with elder ones yeah starting starting to write the third one right oh wow i'm excited for that so there's holy science which was in 2016 and then from untruth in 2019 from untruth is just i mean just the the title itself is so evocative of our upbringing because it's like the very beginning of a prayer that we have so <laughs> that's where it that's where it comes from um and yeah very few people are going to uh, get that reference but but yeah like i i think there was a bunch of things like i had also done this heavy research project in grad school that um was about john coltrane and hindu theosophy and basically like tracking sort of how 
his music changed as he got more and more deeply into the teachings of Paramahamsa Yogananda and universalism and just getting deeper and deeper into Hinduism. And as I was doing that, I like did more research on Alice, which at that time there was like nothing written about her. And I scrolled down on her webpage. And then at the bottom of her webpage was a picture of Sai Baba, the guru that our family followed. And so that opened up this huge thing. So when I was like starting to make my own music, I was playing harmonium, which is the instrument you play in bhajan. And, like, doing all this free improvisation and creative music and, like, reconnecting with, like, free jazz and, like, Cecil Taylor and um, late Coltrane and all this and Albert Eiler and all this stuff. The Alice Coltrane connection is is always just mind-boggling to me. So, you know, it, it's funny because people always say she was John Coltrane's second wife, but also, like, he she played piano. Like, she was a, a side woman with Coltrane and some of those later records and then she was an artist in her own right and indeed like the scholarship is is uh limited uh, you know unless unless you also know where you're what you're looking for I think it's like it's very unlikely you will just happen upon this I've sent like those recordings of Alice Coltrane singing the budgeons that we grew up with I've sent it to like all my friends I'm like listen you don't understand like this is this is that music like directly I mean it's not even it's like the same thing and so Tell me more about Alice Coltrane. I just want to, because I know you know so much about her, and um, and you were even I like doing research specifically on her. Yeah, I mean, and and I would say that was just such a big moment for me to realize that there there's first of all this like giant of a female musician, a black woman, who we don't like talk about but also just on that personal level of like she literally came from the same spiritual tradition and like is like that was driving her music after she got out of a professional career but she was like a cutting her teeth as a bebop pianist in in the in the sort of image of bud powell and um she was a serious musician. She was touring. She toured in Europe, um, and she was that was when she was married to her first husband. And it was as it was on a gig that she met Train. Um, mm. And so they were both musicians, you know, just right. working musicians. And wow. their big point of connection was spirituality. That was like how they really got deep and you know train was already like looking into all these different spiritual traditions you know part of what got him sober was um was was spirituality and finding god and his first wife was um naima was muslim and so he was studying about islam and then i think him and alice had that interest and when he died i think that was a huge I mean, that was a huge moment for the world, but it was a devastating thing for her. They had, you know, they had multiple children together um, and Robbie Coltrane being one of them. Um, and uh, and she kind of, it was so devastating. It, it, it changed her life. So she did end up continuing to record and she, she continued as a band leader. Uh, eventually she had a trio. She made a few commercial records, like a monastic trios, kind of more commercial record, even Journey and Sachita Ananda. Coltrane actually bought her a harp um, towards the end of his life. She, I guess she only received the harp 
after he died because it was like a long, you know, because it wasn't like ordering a harp on Amazon at that time. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. It took a while back then. Yeah, and, and she had never played harp and so she had started to play harp and she was so into Indian music, you hear the influence of like how she uses the harp is so much like a sitar and their son was named Ravi after Ravi Shankar, you know. So um, you, you see it even in the commercial records that she's going to this more spiritual place. What I got really interested in was what was it about India and the East and Indian music and Zen and, and Eastern philosophies um, that was so attractive to these black jazz musicians in the 60s and 70s? And I started to view this as while these were spiritual, personal, Yusuf Latif, like all these folks, um, these were personal choices and spiritual choices. They were to me, I view them as political because they were an alternative to the hegemonic kind of European thing, you know, and even though obviously like the Christian spirituality was still important uh, to Coltrane who came through Pentecostal churches and things and that viscerality and that energy or Alice like gospel music is still in all those budgets. You can hear it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was like this alternative. It was like, a decolonial alternative to what, um, you know, in a place that didn't really accept you, it's kind of, why not look to another place? And so they looked to the East. And for me, it was almost like when I started making my own music, I started to realize I needed to do that as well. But I'm from, like, my parents are from India. And it was like, instead of looking to kind of some other culture, uh, which I've always been immersed in black culture because we're American, but also because I loved hip hop and R&B and like Lauren Hill was like, you know, my <laughs> goddess when I was growing up. But but I, I was like, uh, you know, white culture is sort of the default. And I kind of realized I needed to go to my roots. And it was interesting. It was like looking at Alice Coltrane and John Coltrane going to Indian music reminded me to go to Indian music (laughs) and spirituality. I think what I started to shed was, and I think it was because of this idea of creative music and and the, the cool thing about that term was when you say I'm a creative musician, someone has to ask you a question. What does that mean? Like the term has a question in it because it's not an iTunes genre, right? It's like, <laughs> um, and so you get to explain on your own terms what what you are. And so when I'm like my first record with my band Elder Ones, which came really out of like my solo harm- harmonium improvisations in my room, which of course had budget influence in them because the harmonium was the instrument I played in that. But I also just used it as a drone. Um, and I was improvising with so many people. Every time I improvised with another musician, something about their language would force me to do something new with my voice, you know. Mm-hmm. And pe- Yeah, there's a kind of adaptation that happens. Yeah, people sometimes call some things extended technique in the voice because I make like percussive sounds or screechy sounds. But to me, anything the voice does is the technique of the voice. I think extended technique is a very kind of uh uh other otherizing way of of looking like it's like hey there's a here's a default normal thing and here's all the abnormal even though like every vocal tradition in the world has all these different ways of vocalizing yeah but when i wrote that first record um holy science i actually there's no lyrics on it which is really odd for a vocal record in jazz it's it's usually filed under spiritual jazz this record because there's a lot of drone um 
And each track is named for like one of the yugas. It's like, you know, um, which is a, a cosmic time cycles in Hinduism. But one track, which is the first one I wrote, was dedicated to Eric Garner, um, mm-hmm. who was killed. Like I had watched that video and then immediately like started improvising. I was alone in a practice space when I saw it on my phone because I was distracting myself with my phone. And then I just started improvising and that that tune was born out of um, that. Like there's these big register changes, these big, big leaps that are very extreme in the voice that by the end of the track, I basically run out of breath of this like um, Mm -hmm. really kind of violent intervallic gesture. Um, And not that long ago, even my record um, from Untruth which has lyrics so like I kind of got rid of lyrics because I in the first record because I felt like writing words kept getting in my way of composing like I kept feeling like how it it like would stall my musical ideas and kind of get like they it would make them go into this like bucket of like this is never going to get finished this composition because I'm (laughs) struggling struggling so much with the words and certain things I didn't want to use were like the Eric Garner piece. I just wanted it to be the voice, like just an abstract voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of weird. And then it was almost like freeing myself of the burden of being a poet, you know, because like every singer is expected to be a poet as well. And maybe we're not all poets, you know? <laughs> huh. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought of it like that. But there's like, yeah, there's this expectation. And also, I hate the idea of writing bad lyrics. I was like, I'm not going to write bad lyrics. (laughs) Like, if I'm going to write words, they got to be top notch. And so, but once I freed myself of that, the second record, especially because it came out um, after, like, I had really written a lot of that music in 2017, the year, you know, Trump was inaugurated. That record became expressly political. That be- that was a protest record. So I'd already had that a little bit because I was doing a lot of organizing in New York around police brutality. It's like Eat the Rich is one piece or um, yeah. deco- Decolonize the Mind is another piece. Dance of the Subaltern. So those are all coming from kind of post-colonial theory and anti-capitalist theory. But I was like, how do you take these kind of academic theoretical things um, and and turn them into like two line sentences that I can improvise with like eat the rich or die starving or you know um and decolonize the mind it's you taught us your tongue and your god the heel of your boot on our necks that's basically post-colonial theory distilled into a one-line phrase so I have a question for you in in relation to that because I've I've listened to the record and I really enjoy it like I think it's great um, and I enjoy it and it, it's tough. Like it's a, it's an interesting kind of enjoyment. It's not just like you, I don't know, at the same time, like you can just have an aesthetic feeling about it. Um, you can think about it. You can very much intellectualize the, what's happening. Um, or you can just feel it in your body as, as we've been talking about. My, my question to you is, is kind of around this idea of accessibility to you. I mean, or I guess I'll, I'll frame it this way. I can imagine an actor friend of mine whose diet is mostly pop music, let's say, or like what's on the radio, who could come to this and really enjoy this music or could come to it and say, I don't understand what's happening. Because the, the kinds of sounds that you may use or, you know, the, 
for some people, like maybe they're used to hearing a certain kind of pop chord progression, and that is not going to appear in, <laughs> in this music necessarily, though it could. How do you think about meeting your audience? Do you, th- do you think about that at all? Is the music for you specifically? Obviously, it's political, so in some ways you're making a statement to others, but in other ways, it's not like you're trying to reach you know, a certain kind of audience or radio play or anything like that. So how do you think about that? like that that space where you're in i think well accessibility that we tie that up with aesthetics of like sound somehow but the word access is inaccessibility and that's the thing i'm most concerned with how do you provide access to people because so far my experience is when people have access and exposure i've gotten very little like actually of people being like Oh, like I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that when you get it out of the academic space or you get it out of the jazz space or you get it out of the avant-garde space, like we played at the Kennedy Center um, atrium, which is like this big open space where they, they, you know, like the public, the whole idea that the Kennedy Center was trying to do was have people just be who coming off work at six o'clock who could just like go check it out. And there was like a, a Guatemalan immigrant family who came up to me and like really wanted to talk to us about the music and like the bassist is Puerto Rican and we were both kind of speaking in both of mm-hmm. our average Spanish uh, to this family and they were really into it and like some old Indian auntie who's not my relative <laughs> um, or or our cousin Vasanth who is a lawyer and he is a lawyer at the Department of Justice and he came up to me and he was like. He was like, man, there's some bangers on this record, you know, and what he means is we grew up listening to Metallica together and Sabbath and all these things. And he was like, this just like has straight grooves and like headbangers on it. And it was cool to hear and or like my mom, you know, like my mom might be the litmus test for me for my music because she loves music, but she doesn't have some like preconceived notions about jazz or like it so I it's funny it's like the aesthetics I feel like become very secondary to like can you hit someone right between the eyes like can you like get to their core being some way and the political message I think is part of that access to me is like I have a motive yeah maybe it leaves out some folks but that's not necessarily who I'm trying to get to I'm trying to kind of bring uh, other maybe maybe more marginalized people together or maybe like get people to activate like my music is very much about catharsis and I think that's a pretty universal thing like I I don't think that necessarily has to do with aesthetics so it's like release like something about watching someone scream why why was Kurt Cobain effective like why was Uh why why was Bessie Smith effective it was like she growled, man. Like, you know, um, watching someone scream is a release for you. You don't get to scream necessarily at your desk job. I get to scream in my job, which is very cool. (laughs) Um, I'm very grateful for that, but I feel like that's a release for people. And something about me screaming about the system, um, which is classic. There's been music like this for that punk is literally that, you know, it, 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 it's accessible, but then, yeah, there's melodies, there's grooves, there's, I, I, I think 
Though I've seen my parents come to my free improvised performances and get a lot out of it, and they don't know anything about music. But I think when you put the music in front of it, when you can actually put people in a room together, or when, yeah, they're not just listening to 30-second snippet and being like, I don't know what this is, and, and you are willing to, like you know, actually go out and have that interaction, like maybe find you, maybe you're going to have to do some work to get your music in front of more people. The the political thing is certainly a really good point of access. So I think there's many points of access. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this is something that I talk about with, with friends of mine who are classical conductors or experimental you know, theater practitioners, it, actors and directors who you don't necessarily think of that as being quote unquote accessible or popular art form. You think of it more as like art music or, you know, whatever these, these terms actually refer to, which is kind of, you know, a discussion in and of itself. But we always talk about how can you find that place, like that bridge, can you create it where you're like, hey, you're not that far from me, actually. Let's just help you get over to the other side so you can see where I'm coming from. If you can just find, like you said, those points of access, sometimes that's all it takes. And then the rest of it, you can kind of feel it. My, my acting teacher always says something that I appreciate. She says, there are ways that we interact with the world that we, we either take them seriously or we don't. So we, we see things and we take that seriously. We hear things, we take that seriously. And then we feel things and we tend to not take that as seriously. And so she talks about that a lot with acting because she's like, look, you, you have to, you can see things, you can hear things on the stage. You have to allow yourself to be moved by the words you're saying. You have to allow yourself to be moved by what the other person is saying. And when you do that, then you realize, oh, this is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be to put on this whole performance because I actually feel what you're saying. So I think about that a lot. Like what you're saying is that there's a sort of aesthetic I don't know, there's an aesthetic that people assume is what is accessible, but in reality, it, if you recognize that when you are just there to feel what's happening and you experience it, then it's all the same. Yeah, and like access, like, you know, a big problem in classical music, but it's getting this way for, I mean, it's totally this way in jazz too, is like, <laughs> if, if people don't feel like, you know, whether it's the village vanguard and they feel like they don't have the etiquette that, understanding when do I clap after the solo or doing or whatever or you know or you you sit at the Lincoln Center and you wonder why no one wants to hear classical music because the ticket is like a hundred dollars or something you know for me I play in basements I play in parks outside I also have played at Carnegie Hall I also play jazz festivals in Europe or whatever, but I'm never going to stop doing the DIY stuff. DIY stands for do it yourself. That's a huge part of what I do. For me, the personal, political, spiritual, artistic, they're all the same. They're all intertwined. So my journey in any one of those areas is going to affect all of those areas. And so, um, you know, that that's sort of like now how I've like really thought about being an artist. And of course, when I'm in a collaborative thing, like with someone like Mary Halverson, I'm doing my thing inside of her thing. And so maybe it's not going to um, be this, the same kind of thing as like when I make my own music, then I really get to like merge all these things together. Um, but a lot of the people I work with and like they tend to also have similar value systems. You find each other, like you find people 
collaborators who share your value system or like I just started working with a filmmaker um, named Sunil Sansgiri who whose family is from Goa and I've done two film scores for him now um, Wow sure yeah I wanted to hear about more about the film collaboration and about what it's like for you to uh, compose music for a film which is kind of set in stone at least by the time that you get it or perhaps not but you know as far as I know usually when I think about film scores, like there's already picture lock. And so you have to kind of work within this structure, which is different than what you were talking about before, where there's a little bit more of like this free improvisation. But how does that compositional process work for you? So, well, I, I've, I've only worked with this, this uh, particular filmmaker whose name is Sunil Sansgiri. And um, I actually met him through musician friends. So he was already like very familiar with the experimental music community and, you know, was like a fan of of um of experimental music and what was cool is like we immediately kind of connected because he's an experimental filmmaker and his like content and his way of making um film is so similar it's like exactly analog to what i do oh i see interesting he's he's mixed um you know uh going indian on one side white on the other side of his family um, but his dad is actually like from Goa, lives in Goa, and they didn't have m much of a relationship. So like a lot of his filmmaking has been like connecting back to his family through filmmaking and like through uh, like doing research on, on Goa. And, you know, Goa was colonized by the Portuguese until the 1970s. They only gained in independence in the 70s. So his films have been exploring a lot about like just the general colonial history of India, but specifically the the Portuguese occupation of Goa because his father was still like alive and conscious during the time where Portuguese like military and people were, you know, occupying Goa. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy to think about. Um, but so his films really deal with that. My music is really dealing with that. And his, his films deal a lot with like, you know, really incredible kind of natural settings and, you know, just straight film, but then also all these digital media techniques, like, like, you know, really kind of experimental digital media techniques, like actually like manipulating the image in all these various ways or hmm. using kind of internet, um, internet stuff and all these things. And he's connecting a lot of like the colonial history to the modern day protest movements in India, like the farmers protests and things. So the first film we worked on was actually, you know, so I know a couple folks who compose for film. And so I talked to them, like a good friend of mine, this guy, Brian McComber has done a lot of film work. And so I was talking to him about uh, all this and, and he was like, you know, rarely does the director actually give you a locked edit. He was <laughs> like, that would be nice. So like, that would be cool. That's but, interesting. But he was like, it's usually constantly changing. And most directors don't have a good sense of what they want musically and have trouble explaining it or they think they have a good sense and then they like are constantly sort of changing what they want or whatever so it's actually he described it to me as like it's always a moving target so you know but it's I think it's just like depends on where you enter the process and I don't know what it's like um for really big things but in this case it's it's such a collaboration that um I enter the process pretty early. So, you know, okay. like 
he has footage, he has like, here's an edit with placeholder music that is like, sometimes he's used my own music as placeholder, right? So <laughs> that's cool. So in that case, it's like, okay, well, that's actually even weirder, because I'm kind of like, okay, that's me. So I got to like, not do <laughs> I, I don't want to do that again. Um, like he used stuff from Holy Science and, and from Elder Ones and, and my stuff with my, my friend Leah Bertucci, which is like voice and um, and reel-to-reel tape machine, which is kind of very much like his films. It's sort of like blending like blending the analog and and the like electronic um, kind of technological with like just acoustic, like pure acoustic stuff is kind of very analogous to his like digital media and like, you know, just beautiful raw footage that oh, he gets. I see. He has like incredible drone footage of like you know the the ocean and Goa and like the landscape and all all this stuff. So it's a really beautiful kind of hybrid. You know the first film he gave me like I had an edit that was not a final edit and it was it definitely changed. But I you know I would watch it and kind of take notes and at least like not perfect cue points, but be like, okay, this is like, something changes here, something happens here, or like, this is kind of the general sort of feeling, like there was one scene where it's, um, he's sitting on a train, um, his, his father is sitting on a train and just talking about the train car, and um, talking about cinema and there's all these clips of Satya Ray's um, Abu trilogy like interspersed yeah. with this like train footage and so I was like okay I'm gonna like maybe compose something that has like a moto perpetuo like like a perpetual motion kind of um, feeling to it on harmonium almost like almost like Philip Glassy harmonium bass parts but that I could like interlock rhythmically and like also improvise over with my voice and and so that, they, like, yeah, the image will spark something. Or, like, in this most recent film, he was talking to me about this um, Goan, like, Hindu Goan deity named uh, Devkar, who is, like, a deity that guides the farmers back home from mm. labor, like, from their daily labor. Okay. Um, and, like, in the night, you know. Uh, and so I created, like, a theme for that deity, you know. And yeah, that yeah, was, yeah, like, right a jumping off point for me. There's sort of two places I want one to go off of that, which is one uh, observation I've just made over the years is how much uh, sort of metaphoric language exists in different art forms to compare it, it whatever the art form is, to another art form. So when you're, when you're talking about music and motion, like that's such a, it's just like a word that we use. And then when you kind of think about it, you're like, no, wait, that's, dance is connected like that yeah, is how yeah. they're connected like the movement on the screen is literally connected to the movement of notes or a change in some kind of timbre or texture like those are all very very clear and so it, it doesn't seem to me like it's a it's a big leap for you to go from uh, I guess experiencing the cinematic process and then being like oh well I can just translate that to music or I can contrast that with music whatever it may be Totally. Well, I, I also, I might be starting from a bit different place than some other musicians is that I just, I've like, film was so crucial for me. And this is the second place I wanted to go to, which is because I just, my, my girlfriend just got me like a six month subscription to the Criterion channel. Yeah. Yeah. And I have so <laughs> I, right. So there's just like a history of film that I'm a little bit less connected to just because I'm not as, you know, I haven't had exposure to it. I took you to this Iranian film 
like film and politics class. I think it was literature and film and politics all together. Yeah. And our professor was sort of introducing me to uh, Iranian like poetry and just prose and then also film. So Golestan and then I was looking at like some of your influences and Abbas Kiarostami came up as well. Yeah, Kiarostami is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I got really into film, I guess, in high school. Like, there weren't that many cultural activities in San Jose that were interesting <laughs> other than going, like, if you if you didn't want to go to San Francisco, but we had a couple great independent movie theaters. We had this place called Camera One that had a coffee shop attached. So <laughs> for, like, a burgeoning hipster, this was, like, my dream. So we would sit in the coffee shop all day. We'd, like, go check out movies. And that's when I learned about, like, Criterion Collection. And, the, again, my public library, that was so huge, had a bunch of Criterion DVDs, and I was, like, watching Kubrick. Like, my parents would go to bed, and I would, like, start a Kubrick film at, like, 11 <laughs> p.m. and like watch it until one in the morning and so I got obsessed with Chaplin um and I was kind of thinking about how how like the influences and and connections started to infiltrate my music so like Chaplin um who's just one of my favorite artists ever he was a total art auteur he was uh, first of all one of the first like real like film directors but he was an actor he was a director he composed he played violin he composed the music for his movies like all the main themes like he was really like a total auteur and um and there were just so many like incredible things like I, I read biographies of him I just like watched everything I think Modern Times is just one of my favorite movies ever and City Lights and um the Great Dictator, which is just such a stunning film. As a Barthanatyam dancer, actually, I got so much out of silent film, like because Barthanatyam is South Indian classical dance. So here's like another multidisciplinary connection where like your your facial expression is everything. Cause it's a it's a it's a narrative dance form. You have like the jathi parts, which are all the steps, you know, which is like the footwork, re- really rhythmic, more musical, more abstract musical and and movement stuff. And then you have scenes, you know, you have like a narrative that's telling this, the story of, of Lord Krishna or something. And so all these facial expressions, you have the mudras, which are the, the um, hand movements. And I think, God, it's been forever, but I think it's like bhavam um, is like the facial expressions. It's all in your eyes. And as a vocalist, because so much of what you do is like conveying story or conveying like some deeper affect of, of a poem or something. And because I was performing classical music in, a, in languages that... I am not fluent in and that my audience is not fluent in. So I was just singing like Schubert's um, Schwanengesang in my, in my senior recital. And like, I like got into, well, I, I really went to an acting place with all of, all of my um, classical music. Cause I was like, I need to make sure I don't want the audience to even need to look at the program note. You know, they shouldn't even have to read the translation. And I, I got to some trippy otherworldly places from go, going to it in that way and like yeah film was a big like silent film was a big inspiration for me and how do I like convey all of this basically assuming they can't understand the text at all um and then my my professor in um the composition and theory professor at my school was a huge cinephile I would like come into his op like he would dr mark he would have like 
open office hours basically anytime and I would just knock on his door and I'd be like I just saw Fellini's Amar chord like can we talk about it and then you know so we would, I would just sit in his office for hours and he turned me on to like there there was um uh th- this filmmaker Robert Brosson um French filmmaker who did Pickpocket and Mouchette and um these movies that I, I think are so fascinating um kind of reminds me of of Kiarostami too where he uses non-actors oh yeah yeah. And and so it's like, okay, you're going to walk up this flight of stairs like 20 times. And they're like, shoot it 20 times. And then by the 20th time, something happens, you know? Well, I, my, I mean, my perspective of it is that, because I think I, this is very similar to at least Taste of Cherry, which is the, I think, I've watched maybe a few of the Kurosami's films, but that's the one I remember the most. But Taste of Cherry has a a bunch of non-actors and they're all in a car and, and to me, I think, I don't know, I mean, obviously I have to do more, some more reading on it, but to me, just from like what I think experientially as an actor, I think the reason why is that by the 20th time, the person who's doing the action has just sort of forgotten about the act. Like there's no affectation added to it at all. It's kind of like David Fincher does the same thing. They'll like do a, a scene like a hundred times and you're just like, why don't we have it the 10th time? But then there's something that he perceives in the 70th time that he's like, oh, there's no acting here anymore. You're just doing it because you're, you're just you're stuck doing it. So I, <laughs> that's all you have. Another thing that I remember very clearly my professor said that was so related to music was he was like, I love how, you know, Brisson, like the editing. Have you noticed how like he'll linger on things that seem unimportant? or things that normally would get edited out are the focus for a moment. So it's like, he'll shoot a door for a bit before it opens. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I was thinking about that and I was like, oh yeah. So it's like, I could linger on a musical moment for a while. Like it's basically subverting That's, an it's audience crazy, expectation. crazy, right? Like he's a, he's a director and he's composing all the, it's not. This is the climax over okay, here I mean, yeah. versus this you know, I, being the climax because we're kind of like playing around with a certain type of convention. And, and so that stuck with me a lot. And just the tone of films, I was so obsessed with P.T. Anderson, like, and Johnny Greenwood's score for There Will Be Blood was like one of my favorite things ever when I was in I college. I just watched that recently. Yeah, I just watched it like a month ago. It's, you know, I think I'm going to do a little thing in this podcast where I sort of break the fourth wall in terms of like the theme. Because I, usually I try to edit podcasts so that they arrive at a theme but I think at this point I'm going to just spoil the ending and I'm going to kind of give the theme because (laughs) to me at least from this conversation well there's sort of two things I've taken from it one is more of like my personal experience and then the other is just an observation on my personal experience side of things you know I really struggled in school like my my final project at school was a, a play that I wrote which was then um I wrote the music to it as well and so and it was going between scenes and then to music and then back and forth. And it was this interdisciplinary thing. The more research I do, the more I realize like it's just that's just the way it actually is for everybody or for other people, even if they don't frame it that way. To a lot of people, it seems really novel that I'd be like, oh, acting and, and music are similar. And then to other people, like some of the people who I'm starting to res- you know really respect, it's becoming very apparent that's just a fact of life. Like that's just the case. Yeah. And if not in your own practice, at at the very least in like where you draw inspiration or in how you collaborate, you know, so like I don't act anymore and I'm not a filmmaker, but like that point of entry for me to collaborate with the filmmaker is so huge. You know, and and the second thing that like I've been 
observing and just thinking about as we've been having this conversation is that that the the difference, be- like we talked about accessibility a little bit, and, and and the difference between what's quote unquote accessible and what's quote unquote experimental is so often just like having a shot and looking at a door long before anyone arrives. Yeah. And it's, a, it's really kind of remarkable. And it's anything like I would want to encourage people to do more is that is to not be is to not feel that experimental things or avant-garde things or creative things as as you like to say it's not that they're they're that far from the things that many people know and love it's just that sometimes you just are taking something just an extra 10 percent in a different direction than people would expect it's all about perspective and just it's like i think there was maybe it was someone was talking about orson wells about how what was unique about orson wells that made him experimental was the fact that he would just shoot the ceiling of a room like you know, sets didn't used to have ceilings on them. And then he was like, oh, what if I turn the camera up like this? It's like, no, you can't do that. He's like, well, wh- why can't I do that? I'm, I'm imaging this. I can just turn it up 30 degrees. It's different. That's all we're talking about here is just a, a, a slight shift in perspective. And, and most people can, most people totally go across the bridge and get there and they're ready to be like, oh, wow, that's a new experience. But it's really not that far from where I was before. But that's always been true of anyone doing anything new in art. And it's funny, it it gets called experimental for a while until it kind of isn't anymore or something. It's like, for me, experimentalism has a lot to do with me just being a hybrid person and not quite feeling like I can even express myself without already flouting some convention. Like, just... By virtue of me being me, I, you know, it comes out upside down or something like, like I didn't know how to write a song when I was in college. I, I like everything I wrote with, even when I was playing guitar would come out as these 15 minute epics. Like I read some anti-war, you know, I remember reading All Quiet on the Western Front when I was like 15 and then writing this song that was like 15 minutes long and like multi-part and it didn't have a verse or a chorus and it just was like these three sections that moved from one thing to the other thing to the other and that's literally what Elder One's songs are like, you know. They're these like sweets, these long-form things. So I don't know, it was something about, I was just like, well, rather than try to fit this fit my thoughts into some prescribed thing that already exists, maybe I should follow my impulse and just try, like, see what happens if I just let go of lyrics. Like, am I allowed to do that? Okay, I did that. And, you know, a lot of people told me, like, it actually was more accessible to more people because when I would go to different countries and perform, they didn't need to know English to understand what I was trying to say even though it seemed like this really odd experimental thing to let abandon words as a vocalist you know so it it's kind of um it's yeah it's like how how you look at things um and how things are presented to people and so that's where I think we could really change sort of how we find avenues um and i think collab interdisciplinary collaboration is a really good one when people see something visual or when they see movement um i think it's like adds another layer another dimension that it, it is another point of entry you know so i don't think you should have to do that but like it's an exciting thing i think to to try and do if if you know if you have the interest indeed i mean i'm 
I'm looking forward to to continuing to see where that takes me and and in the same vein I'm very excited for this next album and I need to listen to I haven't listened to the the work that you've been doing with uh Leah you said Bertucci Leah Bertucci yeah yeah I, I need to listen to to that and understand like how <laughs> this tape machine <laughs> interacts with your voice that's very interesting to me and I'll link I'll link to all this stuff for the listeners so that you know, there's a lot in here, so I'm going to go back through, and as I'm editing, I'll make sure that I, I link to all the various things we've talked about. Uh, Amrita, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll do this again sometime soon. Any, anytime. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms, the podcast and the newsletter at artinallitsforms.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. And if you want to send us a question or comments or concerns, uh, please email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's aiaifpod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.